1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 197. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to Chelsea Colwell-Posh about a mechanical auger for archaeological prospection that she invented. Let's get to it. Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Just uh, kind of
3: waiting around to find out what my next assignment is. There's a good chance <laughs> I'm going to be going back to Saudi for a couple months uh, nice. in a week or maybe two or maybe two days. It's a little unclear, but we'll figure it out. And I hope that we can get, uh, you know, like we had last summer when I was away, that we can get some good interviews and or a temporary co-host for you while I'm off because I don't think I'm going to be able to co-host at that time.
2: Yeah. Maybe our guest we have today, we, we didn't ask her this, but you know, later on, we'll ask maybe, <laughs> hey, we'll maybe she'll guest right host now. a couple episodes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just hijack her time. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah, no, I'm doing great. It's uh 74 degrees Fahrenheit down here in sunny Mexico and you know we're, we're having a good time uh, just for all those tech nerds out there our solar is working amazing we've got the generator on actually right now but that's only because our washer and dryer doesn't work on the inverter we currently have so that's another upgrade we got to do but you know being totally off grid for this whole month sitting a couple hundred feet from the beach in Mexico has been pretty awesome because as far south as we are our nearly 1200 watts of solar is, is plenty to keep us fully charged during the day we have started shutting our inverter off at night just because we lose like 25 percent sleeping and the only thing it's really running is like the refrigerator and starlink neither of which need to be on when it's getting down to the upper 40s at night so you know it's uh super efficient so we just kill it and then turn it back on in the morning and we only lose like three percent so it's pretty cool for all you again off-grid nerds out there so all right so we have a we have a little bit of an update to episode 194 paul why don't you hit us with that
3: Yeah. So we got a really lovely email um, about a week ago from Brent Whitford, who was the primary author on the lead author on the article that we discussed in episode 194. And one of the things I brought up was I wasn't quite sure how they got the kind of organic 3D modeling of the various strata that they were excavating when they also talked about in that same article about using uh, shape outlines uh, to cut out basically the, the term they used was cookie cutters. And so amongst other things in the email he sent me, He explained their methodology and I got permission from him to quote directly out of the email he sent that I think would be useful to anybody listening to this that wants to go back and uh, and understand a little more detail how they do such really cool work. So here's the quote. It says, because we excavate each deposit, that is each context stratigraphically, as suggested by Harris, the true top and bottom of each individual deposit is captured in one or more models. We also Mm -hmm. then have their organic sides modeled, such as when we cut them out from the unit model, it captures their actual shape. To provide a basic example, say we make a model in which the top outline of a pit are visible. We then excavate the pit and make another model to capture its sides and bottom. Then by minusing the model below from the model above, we we're left with only the excavated volume of the pit. Nice. So it really was, I think I questioned, I said, I think that it's the way that they're digging. And basically it's confirming that it is the way they're digging and gave me a much more detail about it. And we've had a number of emails back and forth, mm-hmm. really, really exciting to have that kind of interaction with somebody to a listener and an author of one of the articles that we were so, uh, so proud, so happy to, to discuss. And then also, because I'm pretty well convinced that these guys dig great, I wanted to point out that <laughs> they also run a couple of field schools through the uh, Balkan Heritage, and we'll okay. put the links in the show notes, but one of them is at that same site in Bulgaria, and the other one is a site in Shar uh, in Hagolan in Israel. We'll put those links in, and I think that if you're at the phase of your career where you want to learn how to dig stratigraphically really well, I would you know dollars and donuts this is a very good program to get into
2: nice well that's pretty cool yeah it's really awesome when we we don't even reach out to the author like we probably should have but we didn't we yeah. just talked about the paper and turns out they're either a listener or we're, it was pointed to it because somebody they know is a listener and that's that's really cool that we've we're, we're people are hearing it like that so that's awesome we really appreciate that All right. So we've got a great interview coming up and we're going to get to that right now. But first, here's a short bio of our guest, Chelsea Coldwell-Posh. Chelsea Coldwell-Posh is president and senior archaeologist of Colbert Consulting Incorporated, a CRM firm in Atlantic Canada that specializes in all types of archaeological surveying, underwater archaeology, but uniquely mechanical auger testing and mechanical screening for archaeological prospection. Chelsea has international and domestic patents on her tech and has been commercially using this technology since 2016 for projects in her province that are too deep, too wet, too large, too large a scale, time sensitive, or too contaminated to test traditionally with a shovel. While she has had great success with her tech, she is currently planning to pivot her business and try to get other firms and jurisdictions involved with using her tech for the benefit of the discipline and progression of archaeological field methodology. Chelsea likes to say, quote, just because we study the past doesn't mean we have to stay stuck in it, end quote. All right, Chelsea, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Chris and Paul. I'm so excited to be here.
2: Me, we're happy to have you. I expected you to say "longtime listener, first time interviewee," just because you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I am uh, just fangirling here and uh, really, just really excited to be here. I, I listen to you guys all the time.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, we're happy to have you on, and and excited to talk to you about this. This thing that you've been a part of creating and and using, and we're going to talk about that a lot. But the reason that we actually started talking about having you on the show is because you reached out to us because we interviewed somebody who's doing something very similar. His name is Brian Fritz, and his episode link is in the show notes. So go take a look at that. But you were like, hey, this is great. Here's what I'm doing, and let's talk about it. And and so that's what we're going to do. So why don't you just give us a – just tell us what we're talking about. What is this machine that you've you've invented, Then and what does it do? Let's just get it right oh, out of the way.
1: Sure. And I, I love what Brian is doing down in uh, Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. uh, so essentially I have a commercialized apparatus that uses an encased auger using our committee screw that I apply for archaeological prospection for probabilistic sampling so, or test pinning on a grid. Mm-hmm. So essentially this came about, I'm in New Brunswick, Atlantic Canada. We are not short of, you know, deep alluvial sediments, <laughs> deep podsolized soils of our mm-hmm. wonderful boreal forest environment. And what we've been finding is, you know, if we can't get through, say, wetland environments, if we hit water table, if the sediments are deeper than 1.2 meters, I can't convert that for you. I am so sorry. Uh, I am metric all the way, uh, but if we feet. can't, yeah, it's eleven feet. If we can't, yeah, I don't think it's eleven feet. Um, <laughs> you right. It's not eleven feet. Wow. <laughs> it's <laughs> three feet um, eleven feet eleven inches. I didn't read
2: the whole thing. Yeah, three oh, okay.
1: feet. <laughs> it's almost four feet. So if if we can't if we can't find what we call a sterile cultural bottom or archaeological bottom or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We have to stop because of occupational health and safety, right? You can't dig deeper sure. safely by by shovel. So we're finding a lot of sites, just we're not reaching that bottom to the point where we could actually say that test pit was cleared or not mm-hmm. for presence absence. So we have this machine. Currently we go to 2.9, 2.92 meters deep we Mm -hmm. do have another version that's going to be able to go as deep as Brian has been able to go I think he goes seven meters or had gone seven meters Mm -hmm. but the version that I have I've been using since 2016 commercially it it has surprising additional applications rather than just deep testing for instance I can excavate and process a test pit in just about seven minutes the, the most we've ever done in a day is about 413, mm. and we can do peat bogs, salt marshes. We can test in the water column or in the seabed or or, or riverbed. We can we can dig through concrete for the most part, asphalt, <laughs> uh, gravel. Yeah, so we've kind of found also like great application for contaminated sediments. So if you're working on, say, a decommissioned lead smelter or something like that, where you definitely don't want to be handling mm-hmm. the contaminated soils, this kind of removes the people from from the actual hole and, you know, you can set up processes. But we've just found all of these applications that weren't necessarily what we originally had created this for but just kind of like a kismet of of oh yeah we can totally do that project because the alternative guys is just watching an excavator dig through stuff yeah. right that's monitoring that's what we're all used to no one's going to tell you that monitoring is the best way to find an archaeological site Right. it's just not. So, I'm saying, hey, let's test it. Let's test it all. Too deep, mm-hmm. too big, you know, you got to do it. You got to have a tight timeline, rescue archaeology. Like we can we can get it done. And we we've shown that we we definitely have.
2: That's that's awesome and impressive, the the volume you can do and the, the number of basically shovel tests that you can do. Well, auger tests, I guess, that you can mm. do or testing uh, units. So in this first segment, I really want to paint a picture as we talk about the rest of it for the rest of the show. I want to paint a picture of of like what this thing looks like. How can you move it so quickly? Like what what is this thing? Is it mounted on something and you and you move mm. it around? Like like tell us what it kind of looks like. And and of course, if you got some links, of course we will link to all this in the show notes so people can click on those and go see what you have. But you know, for the show here, what does it look like?
1: Sure, I'll paint the the picture <laughs> as best I can. I'll I'll channel my inner author here. Sounds so good. lean back, close your eyes, picture a, a beautiful cat. 279d uh (laughs) skid loader or skid steer track loader whatever you you call it for where you're from they're all Uh, i think about really
0: yes exactly
1: i mean (laughs) and picture the tracks being landscape tracks what that means is they have a larger footprint which Mm -hmm. minimizes how much weight is distributed on any one point so My skid steer can actually drive across a golf course without rutting it or tearing up sod. Jeez. So th- that's important because there's always this misconception that equipment plus archaeology equals not, not a great look. Right. And for the most part, that's true. But there are ways to, to mitigate that, that damage. So we have our skid steer, skid loader. On that, you're going to have a cradle. And that cradle has what we call the pumpkin or the planetary driver. It's a high flow system. And then there's a there's two arms that hold a tube, a cylindrical tube. And inside that tube is a specialized auger bit that has flights that are angled just so that the actual only impact you have on the ground is the edge of the auger that is at, at an extreme angle that slices initially into the dirt and then it actually pushes the soil up the auger flights like an escalator so hmm. it's not like a screw where you're actually like displacing material or it's not a blender you're not mixing material you know we've had you know essentially peat cores come out of this encased auger system completely intact the the auger itself the the case has water jet cut holes that are to our regulatory standard size screen of one quarter inch that's the only time you'll hear me use imperial (laughs) (laughs) measurements and yeah so essentially what it does it's 60 centimeter diameter that's almost two feet so in New Brunswick, we actually have very, very strict, or I guess we would say rigorous regulatory requirements for archaeology. Some would argue we're probably the most regulated in the, the country, perhaps even the, the continent. Mm-hmm. You know, our test pits are 50 by 50 centimeter. They, they must go to archaeological bottom or water table or that 1.2 meter cutoff And for the most part, our grids are on 5-meter or 10-meter grids. We have a predictive modeling system that we essentially have to prove we don't need to test as opposed to be subjective in saying why we think testing's required. The default is always to test. So this gets a lot of use. The 60 centimeters is slightly larger than our regulatory requirements. So over-testing's never bad, especially when it doesn't mean more work. Chelsea, did, did
3: I get this right then? Your description of the machinery, it sounds to me like even though you're using an auger bit as the, the, the cutting blade, it sounds like you're basically using it for coring right? So that you're not mixing up the materials inside. Is that, a, is that a fair description of what you're doing with it?
1: I think that's a pleasant side effect that because we do presence absence testing. So not necessarily getting the you know core perfectly intact because we don't have the system at the, at this point where we can say open up the encased auger and see that core intact because what goes in must come out so as we <laughs> as we bring this material up into this encased auger there is quite a lovely selection a buffet if you will of different screening methodologies that must applied to the the test pit so You know, we we do wet screening, we do mechanical screening, we do hand screening, and we even just this year, we purchased what we call a drum screener. Mm. And it's really about uh, trying to mitigate the problems you create when you dig just really deep, consistent. That's another wonderful thing about this is every test pit is literally the same size. Mm, Every test pit. There's not going to be a variation between, you know, Jimmy and, and Bob. (laughs) <laughs> who dig 50-centimeter test pits, but Bob's is 55 and Jimmy's is 37. But, you know, we're going to get a really consistent probabilistic sampling yeah. grid. <laughs>
2: Or the shapes where one's a bathtub and one's a point, right? Some people can <laughs> take good holes and some people can't.
1: <laughs> That's right. And you ha- you always have that one tech that just takes so much pride in their work that you could you could literally, you know, put that their test pit on the cover of your of your report. And then there's the other guys who are just like, like you don't know if they were trying to no. bury a body over the weekend or like
2: Right. Right. All right. Well, with that, I think we've got a good idea what this thing looks like and what it does. Let's continue this discussion on the other side of the break. Back in a minute.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.
3: Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode one ninety seven. Today, we're talking with Chelsea Caldwell Posh about an as yet unnamed augering device that she has invented <laughs> and patented, and uh, and is telling us about right now. Um, Chelsea, I want kind of curious. There, we ended the last segment, and you two were joking about all the kind of crazy shovel test pits we've seen over the years, and I will. Yeah, admit to having made some of those myself. (laughs) We all have. (laughs) And so I was wondering, your your device is it intended to be a one for one replacement of STPs? Is it trying to meet some slightly different need in CRM work?
1: Sure, that's a that's a great question. the The impetus for for this machine was essentially to address the deep testing. That we've been encountering more and more here in New Brunswick. We are the, the province of, of rivers and wetlands. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking just to, to dig a, a lot of holes, just to know that you're going to have to stand there and watch an excavator dig through it anyway. So we've kind of organically grew into other applications. So say there's a project that has a very tight timeline. And There's maybe six or seven archaeologists in my province. So when something really big needs to happen, it's not like there's massive amounts of options to get things done on on the scale that they sometimes need to get done on. So... You know, those were kind of what I thought were going to be one offs, you know, because I I do shovel testing. I do underwater surveys. I do monitoring and and pedestrian surveys, you know, and the mechanical was a very small portion of our offering of uh, of of services. But it it kind of it kind of grew into, you know, we had a project that was 10,000 test pits that Hmm. was completed in 73 days. Jeez. (laughs) so it's a lot it's it and and that's kind of a you know I have a great team I have a very ambitious competitive strength streak with myself like okay guys we did this many yesterday how many can we do today you know and that's probably like my my team are probably oh my god like she's gonna literally try to kill us and you know that that's the thing is i'm right there with them i'm with everyone i'll be the one with the shovel trying to egg people on see if i can do one more than you know the 20 something rugby player but it's definitely grew into these different applications because The option that's left on the table is just watching an excavator dig through things. So the regulator has been very open to this technology. Essentially, we got a a pilot project with them. And pretty much for the first three years of using this equipment, everything we've pulled out of our auger and our screens has gone directly to the regulator to ensure that we're not out there just mangling artifacts and destroying context and all of that stuff so you know we we had a very very nice review of all of the artifacts we've ever taken out of the machine our breakage rate is less than one percent which Hmm. you know shovel testing can be upwards of 26 percent artifact breakage you know because there's no there's no gentle way you know there's no gentle way to dig a hole whether it be yeah. by hand or machine. It's just this machine, is, we're just using our committee screw. It's just sucking up, but also pushing, using the soil to push the material up the flights. So there's only really one point of, of impact, whereas a shovel, you're just, you know, if you're anything like me, you're going at it like, you know, nacho yeah. dip at a party. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Nice>. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just wondering with, with that description of you know the screw and, and just kind of like pushing the dirt up I, i'm obviously thinking of some areas where i've dug before where it was just like you know a heavy amount of roots and things like that would this handle that kind of environment or is it is it really well suited for the the sort of peaty environment you've got up there you mentioned the like ancient boreal forest but like what remains and how does it handle that kind of thing if you've tested it in those environments
1: so just for root cutting alone this is worth using <laughs> we yeah, honestly if you've ever had to buy a mini pocket chainsaw mm-hmm. to, to cut the roots out of your test pit this thing essentially just gives them a nice uh, nice little snap and and they're gone nice yeah we like i said we were uh cindy lopper that would be a really good name I love it. That's what I actually call my my hand loppers on site is good old Cindy. Yeah,
3: we all do. Oh. Cindy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, girls yeah. just want to have fun. Um, but yeah, these this machine essentially just uh, cuts the roots. We've dug through asphalt, like driveways and things like that. And and all we do is we kind of just take the cap off. So if you can imagine us digging down until we get you know either the the side cap or the gravel, the fill the asphalt. Then we take the auger to the side and we reverse the rotation. It falls out the bottom. And then we try to to keep all of the uh, the cultural sediments kind of in in one go. But uh, a normal auger, if you can picture like a post hole digger or something, you know, it, it creates this anthill mound kind of at the top. That's the whole point is you you dig down and you bounce mm-hmm. it up and down and all the material kind of anthills the top. You look like you got a mm-hmm. little volcano there and all this this encasement does is it it keeps it in the auger it allows you to transfer it to however you are going to be screening it like i said we have a a bevy of, of ways we can do that mm-hmm. i i'm not ashamed to say like this is really a simplistic innovation it's a it's a really simple model there's nothing here that's that's super um like super out of this world you know, it's not going to take anyone to the moon. It's not complex, and there's something to be said. You know, if you've ever worked on, on old trucks or old motorcycles, you know there's something to be said about not having to worry about uh, computer systems and and getting a little grease on your on your hands and and a quick weld to do a a simple repair is a lot easier than a, a laptop and an Ethernet cable or. Although there, there are people out there, I hear, that really enjoy computers and coding and things like that. So, <laughs> so I mean, I won't judge on them on it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm not judging, you know, to each their I'll, own, but.
3: Tell you, I'm uh, handier with the electronics than with a weld. I, I'll, I'll do a field weld <laughs> if I have to, but it's going to be the ugliest thing ever.
1: <laughs> Hey, like once you get that first stack of dimes, well, I tell you, you'll, you'll be oh, first stack of dimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I don't think I've gotten a single dime yet, but that's that's <laughs> a different conversation. Um, I, I wanted to ask you. You know, you'd you mentioned this extremely low breakage, but you also talking about how good the tool is for cutting through roots. How does it? How, how do you get something that can cut well without breaking the artifacts that you find? I'm I'm curious how that works mechanically.
1: Sure. And it's just about the rotation and the pressure. Um, It's Mm -hmm. essentially just pulling the root until it snaps at the point where the encasement hits it, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. If you're like me and you've ever been guilty of pulling those little what I call angel hair roots uh, out of the side of your test pit with just Mm -hmm. a a quick snap of your thumb and and index finger. It's essentially that on on a high flow skid steer scale. So essentially, the the auger rotates. It grabs the uh, the root end, and it pulls it until it breaks. Hmm. So that being said, this is a great segue into the limitations because I'll tell you, this uh, technology is amazing, and we've seen so many applications, and we've used it, you know, on on sites that had five test pits that were three meters deep or ten thousand test pits that were you know 70 centimeters deep but this is not a, a, a innovation that's going to replace test pitting this is really for those sites that you would traditionally see monitoring i'm just saying let's replace monitoring there's a better methodology if you're going out looking for say burial sites that type of thing absolutely should not be using any sort of machinery to do delicate work. Same as if you're working on say a known site that has a lot of significance. Maybe delineate that by hand. Of course, there's always caveats. So let's say it's a rescue archaeology effort, something's eroding into the sea, you have literally two or three days to do as much as you can, you know, then we would see this technology really being utilized for those instances. It's it's more of replacing one piece of equipment that is not for archaeology with something that is for archaeology. If that makes sense,
2: right? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, that's something that we talk about as archaeologists all the time. How we uh, we borrow from every other field. I mean, the, the, the typical thing is that the only scientific development that's for archaeology is uh, is radiocarbon dating, and everything else is something that we've adopted from any of a wide range of other fields and made work for ourselves so it's interesting that you've got an invention here that is specifically made for archaeology as opposed to being borrowed from geology or petrochemical uh, drilling or something like that
2: yeah
1: yeah and and it's actually interesting i've had geotechnical surveyors ask me about it because they do test pits as well, right? They they need to look at stratigraphy if they're trying to do, say, the plans for a foundation or that type of thing. And they're like, you know what? If you can get down deeper, you call us. You let us know because right now they get an excavator and they dig the equivalent of an Olympic-sized swimming pool just to get a safe, deep yeah. stratigraphic analysis, mm. you know? <laughs> so, like, this this can be this one of those rare, you know, archaeological – innovations that might be able to be applied elsewhere.
3: Hmm. Well, I have a, another follow-up question there. You just said stratigraphic analysis, and that's something that we haven't discussed here. Are you able to dig by strata with the auger, or are you digging in arbitrary depths and uh, and then inferring the strata later?
1: I tell you, if if I could somehow know what the stratigraphy was before I dug, I would be, mm-hmm. you know... I, well, I, I actually don't <laughs> think I would be anywhere else, uh, any different than where I am now, because not a lot of people would necessarily care about that, except maybe the people on this call and, you know, a couple <laughs> thousand archaeologists around the world. But you can... Definitely arbitrarily dig a test pit, 10 centimeters at a time, five centimeters at a time, 20 centimeters at a time, however you need to do it. The one thing I will say is you get the most beautiful profiles from test Mm. pits uh, with this machine. Mm. I was trying to toy around with going to the SAAs and making a life-size three-meter deep test pit profile and print it out and kind of put it next to like my exhibitors booth and just be just to show people just how how beautiful it is but also the size the scale right because i'm doing 60 centimeter diameter test pits in other places they only might need 20 centimeters 30 centimeters 40 so i'm just showing like how much material can be removed which thus increases the the confidence interval of your sampling strategy Mm -hmm. Hmm ensures that you're covering more area, that if something is there, the likelihood of hitting it is, is I, I believe, 12.63% higher. Don't quote me on that. I don't have the, <laughs> the paper in front of me. But it's over-testing. It's It's consistent. We can go deep. We can go wet. We can go fast. And we can also run it lean, which means I can do test pitting Um, by myself which is never recommended never do anything by yourself yeah but but you can definitely run a very lean crew if need be and do a a heck of a lot of work
2: well that leads me to kind of one and a half of my questions which was how many people does it take to run this thing so you can run it with one but optimally how many people do you have here and then you know, once you answer that, what's the what, what's the, what's the training curve on this thing? Like you've got field techs you've just hired that are used to shovel in a in a you know portable screen. What is the learning curve to get them into this system?
1: Sure. So uh, the first part of your question. So really, as many people as you throw at it, it means the more efficient you can do. When we did 413 in one day, we had 12 technicians. Jeez. Uh, yeah. So that you know, keep in mind we're in New Brunswick. There's you know we're we're not the you know developers capital of the world, yeah. Nor the archaeological professional capital of the world. So if you had say a hundred people and five machines going, I wouldn't even venture a guess. Depending on the the conditions, of course, and the depth, and you know how. Accessible the the grid is etc cetera, etc cetera. you know you could really do a lot of damage to uh, and by a lot of damage that's a really bad colloquial term <laughs> to use uh, see I am not a businesswoman Smoking. a lot, uh, so, a lot of not damage <laughs> yeah. uh, you could you could make a lot of headway uh, on a very long large linear project that had fifty thousand test pits you know and because there's always that risk of archaeology taking too long and just being cut or you know reduced triaged because they're running out of time. And I'm yeah. saying no, no, you can do the testing. you can you can do it all. We can all we need is people and and a couple more machines. And that being said, nice. the training, it's all about safety, right So what we've done is the operator, it's a single operator. no one needs to be around, the grid system that's being tested at that time, no one needs to be around the machine. The operator only has a, a one side, limited access to wherever the screen methodology is being used. And there's always the screen between the people and the equipment. And we've kind of intuitively ca- come up with systems over time that just make things better. Like no one's allowed to go, say, record the test pit stratigraphy and, and stuff when the machine is, is working. The assumption is, you know, the person in the machine cannot see you. So you have to be the person taking care of your situational awareness at all times. But we've, we've come up with systems where all people have to do essentially is screen the material for the most part. 99% of all the crow, all they do is they wait for the next test pit to come and they screen through the material and Mm. what that has done. um, You know, I'm, I'm coming up on forty. Hard to believe. I know this is a podcast, and you can't see my <laughs> wonderful skin tone and you know beautiful highlighted blonde hair and you know definitely not any uh, wrinkles around my eyes or anything like that. I'm painting a picture again here, but uh, it's really helped with attrition. You know, archaeology yeah. is a it's a hard physical job, but the the value we have from people is you know, how fast they dig a test pit, how long they can last and how good they are at, at looking at materials uh, for artifacts. So yeah. what we're essentially doing is saying, you know, you could technically, you could be in a wheelchair, you could be 70. And if you can still push through the screen and identify material, you know, you have found maybe a second wind in this industry.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, We're going to take a break so we can take our third wind in this podcast on the other side of this segment. That was terrible. I'm going to own it though and leave it in the break wind after this. (laughs) Oh my God. So, and then we'll really do some damage to your favorite archaeological sites to use the tagline of the uh, equipment here.
1: Worst tagline ever.
2: (laughs) Back in a minute.
0: Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully, it ends up in your hands.
2: welcome back to the architect podcast episode 197 and this is the final segment and so chelsea i just want to know i mean you've, you've you've said throughout the show that this is a commercialized product and we know because you told us that you've patented this product what was the process around patenting it like and and as you're getting into that, like what, what actually are you patenting? Because obviously if somebody wants one of these things, they'd have to buy like a skid steer as well. I don't think you're, you would include that you you didn't patent the skid steer. Like that's a thing that you can just buy. And I think that Archimedes has the patent on the screw too, right? Right. So what are we (laughs) doing here actually?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, so the, the patent is actually on the, the apparatus, so it's it's essentially an attachment for a skid steer. The same way you could buy, you know, a, a regular auger attachment or a jackhammer attachment, yeah. or mm-hmm. you know, even a dump bucket attachment for your skid steer. Sure. It's it's just the attachment portion, mm-hmm. and the patent is actually on the um, the design and the methodology. And that took about three and a half, four years in some cases to right. actually work my way through the patent process and a lot of money to lawyers and a lot of re rewording different sentences or half of a mm-hmm. sentence or spelling in a American versus British way, um, or <laughs> vice versa. So a lot of, uh, hair pulling and, uh, maybe some hard seltzers uh helped get through the process. But uh it was it was actually really great. I'm I'm actually a really, really huge nerd. I know it's a shock, right? <laughs> and uh I I'm a huge fan of uh Nikola Tesla and for me it was I always wanted to have an invention. So It wasn't necessarily like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a ton of money and I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. It Mm -hmm. was, I'm going to try to make something that's really hard easier. I'm going to try to make something that's really hard better. I'm going to try to get a patent on this so I can have, you know, I have two daughters that are six and four. I want them to be like, my mom has, (laughs) you know, five patents on this piece of equipment and That's just something I always imagine what my my obituary will say, you know, and I I wanted inventor to be a part of that. It was just, you know, the moment I get enough money, I'm going to space, guys. That's that's the goal. That's the end game here.
2: Wait, your, your your tombstone's not going to say augured her way into the history books? It's not going to say that? Oh! yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you
1: know, I won't charge you for the sound effects there, but yeah. No, it, it, I know it's a little bit silly, but uh, no, cool. it, it was just something, yeah, it's just kind of uh, aligned that way. And, you know, as I said probably before, and, and you know, my, my business lawyer's probably kicking me under the table somewhere, but <laughs> it would say, stop saying your not a business person, you know, you're, you're kind of cutting your own feet out from under you, but I'm not, if I were a business person, this would probably be commercialized and franchised and licensed and out there already with, uh, what's that guy's name? Billy, Billy May yelling at you at an infomercial.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Well, you know, I mean, it really does behoove people to stay in their lane, to be honest. We talk about that from a scientific standpoint on the show all the time. It's like, you know, why hire an archaeologist to do your, you know... I mean, mean, insert weird technology here when you can hire somebody who really knows what they're doing with that thing. And the archaeologist should Mm. probably understand it from their project standpoint. But it goes the same way with with business. I mean, I run a small business. And do I do my my own bookkeeping? Not if I want to stay out of jail, I don't. So, (laughs) you know, I I have two fantastic ladies. One's my bookkeeper and one's my accountant. And and they keep me honest. So and keep my books honest. (laughs) And because I don't know how to file all that paperwork and I don't want to know. It's just something I don't need. So I totally understand being the uh, the inventor side of it. Did you patent it in the U.S. and in Canada?
1: I did. I have yeah. uh, U.S., Canada, international, U.K., yes. Europe, and Australia.
2: Wow. That's yeah. awesome. I
1: wanted to, to cover all the bases.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. What are the next steps towards the commercialization process of this device?
1: Number one is probably uh, stop degrading myself in, in public. <laughs> um, number two, I'm working on a white paper right now to essentially just use all of the, the amazing and crazy case studies just from my tiny little corner of the world to really show the vast utilization that this technology can bring to the field of archaeology. Because I, I honestly cannot be the only person that would benefit from this Especially when I know, I just know that, you know, the industry down in the U.S. is just massive. Yeah. And we're coming up on yeah. a huge restriction of archaeologists who can hold permits, you know, mm-hmm. in CRM. How are we going to deal with this increase of cultural resource management work coming in, but a decrease in archaeologists who can do it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this could be a, a perfect time.
3: Indeed. Yeah. I mean, there've been a lot of discussions lately about the uh, difficulty of finding field techs and you know getting people to work on projects or long-term viability of of individual field techs uh, is staying in the field. So I suppose if you find some way of mitigating that from the business end, mm. that's useful to the field, especially if you do so without reducing quality, right? Because mm-hmm. that's always the fear. As you get rid of people, you reduce quality. If you can do it while maintaining, you quality and I'm thinking of quality because I'm in the middle of writing a paper right now about uh, field surveys, and a lot of the the literature that I'm reviewing has to do with you know with visibility and obtrusiveness and you know what percentage of things are seen by different people depending on the mm-hmm. ground cover and whatnot so anyhow so if you can at least regularize and standardize that and say you know mathematically that yes we can get this guaranteed that that's an interesting step forward. Now, I know this because we had a little bit of a pre-recording discussion, but you said earlier, you said six or seven archaeologists in the province. I don't know if you're um, if you're being a little hyperbolic there or if there really are that few. I mean, I know there are only like 16 or 17 people in Canada anyhow, so I <laughs> yeah, might be right. I know that's a part. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to mention that we, we know one that you've worked with, that you work quite closely with, who is uh, Carol Woolsey, who was on this podcast just about a year ago on episode 172 discussing the company Archeosoft and the Stratum software? And Cora was talking about increasing efficiencies in the field. And that's something that you're talking about. But just to be clear, this, this uh, even though you two work together on, in some respect, your auger is addressing the same concerns, but not part of the same company, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. So I'm actually uh, involved with Cora uh, and her ArcheoSoft and Stratum software as a investor, because to be honest, her solution, it's important for me that it, it, it be solved because the problem with being able to, say, dig a lot of holes more efficiently and faster, it means that you're creating more data that needs to be recorded. And we have not come up with a way yet to meet the uh, the amount of um, so 413 test pits in one day. I don't know about you guys. Have you ever recorded 413 test pits in one day? I've
3: um, written 413 words in a day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't see it, but my thighs are the size of tree trunks because <laughs> of the amount of squats you have to do. It's it's actually creating uh, a backlog of. Of data and you know what Cora and ArchaeoSoft and the Stratum software are looking to do is just make everything more efficient and you know we're really there guys we're there in archaeology I see you guys talk about it all the time on this podcast mm-hmm. we're there where we need to be you know we can study the past we don't have to be stuck in it we can create software and innovative technologies specifically for archaeology we are no longer relegated to the sidelines if you've read that paper on the forecast for the CRM industry mm-hmm. you know couple billion dollar industry like that that's no small potatoes as we say
2: yeah and you know I've always said from a business standpoint, you know, developers are never going to pay us more money to do this, right? Like we're always struggling just for contracts and, 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 and trying not to script the bottom of the barrel just to win projects, especially down here in the United States. So in order to make ourselves, you know, make these projects a little more lucrative we have to get better we have to get more yeah. efficient and we have to find ways to not cut costs in an unethical way by paying people less and and you know tripling up in a hotel room or something we just need to become more efficient and use better tools for our job that you know may have an initial upfront cost but looking at the follow-on savings that you could make because of the increased efficiency is something that is really difficult for a lot of archaeologists to do i mean i've been involved with software before and and different software programs in the past, the the math is there, but it's almost impossible to convince some people that are running companies that you can actually save money in the long run by by doing this. And it's it's, it's a real tough sell.
1: Absolutely. And I really believe, so once or if or when this technology (laughs) that that I use ever becomes available for others to, to use, Archeosoft stratum software will be part and parcel of the process you know if you want to be able to to work as efficiently and i'm i've been using this since 2016 i'm the operator of doug probably more test pits in the province of new brunswick than anyone (laughs) and i can say you know wholeheartedly like here's the process here's the best way to do it and here's the software that'll help you maximize that efficiency
2: you know you you were talking about 400 plus test pits in a day. I was just thinking, you know, the, the most I can ever think of digging. And I only know this because I was talking to some of the other people on the crew. This was over 10 years ago down in like uh, North Carolina. And, and i dug i think like 80 something in a day but that's only because they were only about yeah they were only about 80 centimeters deep and they were all sand one strat like you could literally put the entire wow. shovel test pit in your screen lift it up and left with a pile of ceramics or something like that so that's the only reason though and and most of the time i mean shit when i dug up in Vermont, forget that. We were lucky to get two done in a day. It was just that clay soil was garbage and there were fifty by fifty centimeter holes. It was just so right, hard to right.
1: dig. <laughs> so that's very that's very synonymous with New Brunswick, right? Yeah. It's a very kind of clay, loamy soil, pod solized, lots of roots, you know, glacial ablation till. You know, it's just miserable. Yeah. Um, the most I've ever done is twenty. And that that I'm telling you was you know, <laughs> tough. That, that was the, the toughest. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that's tough. So we're doing the end of this show, Chelsea, and, and we'd definitely love to have you on again in the future. But if somebody is thinking, man, I'd really like to get my hands on one of these things. How far do you think you're away from doing that?
1: Ooh. So <laughs> I already I already know it works. I'm in this very strange limbo of kind of reaction versus proaction, which means I'm I'm booked, guys, for the next two years, mm-hmm. specifically just with this technology, specifically just in New Brunswick. So my my life is a series of of field season to writing season to field season to writing season. And then somewhere in there see my children and my husband and all of that <laughs> stuff. But I I am making an effort this year as part of my, you can't see it, but I'm doing those horrible finger quotations (laughs) strategy for Colver, my company, to get it out there. Get this white paper out so people can see the case studies we've used in New Brunswick. Talk to more people like I'm doing right now because I'm actually uh, just a one of those horrible hermit introverts that that doesn't really <laughs> like people and so uh out of my my uh, shell right now but talk to people and if if someone has a project that they think the excavator that they would watch going through a site could actually uh be replaced by doing the systematic sampling or or prospection of their their area with this equipment reach out to me i would absolutely be tickled pink to see this on any other project anywhere else in north america because the name of the game is just bringing the entire discipline into the the future we've put people on the moon Guys, we're rucking up with with shovels and screens and being like, "Hey, guys, give us you know three months and we'll get it done." And the bird surveyors have heat-seeking drones, and they're done in twenty minutes. So we we have drones. to catch up. Oh, no. Yeah,
3: <laughs> that's great. Let's uh, Let's uh, just wind this up then with um, with a quick question. If somebody does want to reach out to you, how best should they do so? And definitely, we'll put this links or whatever in the uh, in the show notes, but. Uh, What's your best way to be reached?
1: Sure. Um, you can email me. It's chelsea.posh at kolber.ca. That'll be down in the description below. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a, a hefty followership of 1,000 people. So, you know, right. feel free to to jump on that train of, <laughs> you know, just my, my thought vomit going on to that. And yeah, I have a website. It's, you know, arguably horrible. I am going to update it here shortly. Uh, And by me, I mean, I'm going to pay someone much smarter than I to update it and and put some more of this stuff out there. Because guys, a lot of what I do comes with a lot of imposter syndrome. You know, what, what right do I have to, to think that I'm doing something special or, or that type of thing? I'm trying to, to get out of that rut and, and and just really say, you know, we've benefited of, from it here in New Brunswick. You know, we're a small corner of the world. Uh, this really needs to be on those very large scale projects, you know, pipelines and long linear, mm-hmm. you know, highways, those types of things, those deep alluvial mm-hmm. sediments that I know that Texas is very fond of, of having, you know, we need to we need to start solving the problems that, you know, our brothers and sisters and in uh, cultural resource management have been kind of butting their heads up against. And it's out there. So we just need it to start getting used. So please reach out. Any questions? You know, I'm I'm hoping to be at the SAAs in Oregon. I should have an exhibitor booth there. Colbert Consulting, booth 308. Come and come and say Hi. I'll have a little model of the uh, the the skid steer and the auger attachment. I'll have some, some handouts and some of our old posters and all of that stuff. And uh, I'll even sign something for you if you want. Like I said, I have a thousand <laughs> followers on LinkedIn, guys. I mean, I'm some kind of them, a big deal.
2: Some of them are bound to be there. So just be <laughs> yeah, prepared <exactly>. for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one, one will be there. Yeah.
2: Nice, nice. All right. Well, we're wrapping up this show. So I just would like to say to all of our listeners, definitely look down at your show notes, open up your phone and check out her contact information and contact Chelsea if you want to get more info on this and convince her to actually get this to where she can sell this to you because it needs Mm. to be out there. I mean, I've worked in 18 different states in the United States. I haven't worked in Canada yet. And there are lots of environments where this would have been a really handy thing to have. And I'll never forget talking to the person whose name is escaping me right now, who did the, <laughs> never yeah, forget who I'll never forgot. forget that <laughs> I'm forgetting his name. Apparently <laughs> the, the, the guy who published the paper on the, the 135,000 year old deposits in San Diego of the Mastodon Ooh. finds that they're saying were created by humans. Now that part is in question, right? That part is definitely in question, but his whole point was, you know, we tell archaeologists to dig to a certain depth, and they dig to that depth because they hit some sort of barrier, like the end of their shovel, or something like that, mm-hmm. and then they just stop. And these, like, there, there could be, there could be layers and layers and layers of nothing because, you know. environmentally something happened and then you you get back down into cultural layers and it's physically impossible to dig down that deep in some places and having something like this you know that's a, a mechanical you know auger like this that could gently pull all the material up for you and 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 help you find these lower layers would be really great and then even if it's not low just the speed of the thing sounds amazing so definitely lots of environments i've worked in where this would be beneficial all right. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope we can have you on again soon. I hope good luck at the SAAs. That is a wild, wild event. I'm not going to be there this year, but it sounds like it's going to be, you know, people are, people are gearing up for it. So it sounds like it's going to be a good one. And I hope you get a lot of contacts and people interested. Awesome.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks so much,
2: so much guys. I uh, wish you all the best of luck. Well, with that, thanks a lot, guys. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect podcast.
3: Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at Chris at Network.com and Paul at lugal.com Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
2: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Chris Webster.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archepodnet.com.